rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. Hello, my friends. Just an announcement before we start today's podcast. We have started a private Facebook group, and it's called Rumors of Grace Podcast. So just search for that in Facebook, click on it, and then request to join, and we will let you in. And you can join all the amazing conversations that we're having, ask questions, get updates on who's coming up next on the podcast, and just continue to build this amazing community that we have uh, started there. So I look forward to seeing you there. It's Rumors of Grace podcast on Facebook. Welcome to another episode of Rumors of Grace. As always, this is Bob Hutchins. Sitting across the silver table from me today is Mr. Ben Howard, and we're going to jump into his story it's fascinating. I've been looking forward to this for quite a while. I want to give you a brief background on Ben. Ben has been living at the crossroads of art, commerce, and faith for more than 25 years, having worked among a variety of companies in the entertainment industry. He was most recently the executive vice president of Provident Films, a company that he ran since its formation in 2005, and Ben departed Provident to launch Third Coast Content in 2018. Some of the box office highlights that Ben has uh, been a part of that you may be familiar with in the faith and family film space is Facing the Giants, Fireproof, Courageous, October Baby, Mom's Night Out, Woodlawn, War Room, which, to- which grossed $71 million at the box office, and I can only imagine, which grossed $85 million. In early 2018, as I mentioned, Ben established Third Coast Content in partnership with Endeavor Content to produce content targeting, targeting the faith and family audience as well. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Bob. So you're, you're a film guy, but not, not a director filmmaker, more production and business, right? That's yeah, that your background? Yeah, you know... I accidentally got into the entertainment business back in the early 90s in the music business, mm. specifically the Christian music business, being a person that has almost no creative talent. Um, I have continually found myself in a place to help creative people, help people God has gifted with creativity do what they do in a way, hopefully, that we can build a business and they can do it for a long time. Mm. So yeah, so I, I happened upon the music business that evolved into what we then called the home video business, <laughs> and then uh, eventually here into the film business. So you're not originally from Nashville. We're not, but not far away. I, I uh, grew up in Huntsville, Alabama. Okay. I was born in Mississippi, raised in Tennessee and Alabama, about as Southern as you can get. But uh, most of my upbringing was in Huntsville, so pretty close. And after uh, graduating from college at Alabama, Spent a couple years um, doing something completely unrelated to to life, uh, adulthood, and worked for Campus Crusade and traveled mm. with a guy named Josh McDowell, carried his suitcases, and then ended up back in Nashville to go to graduate school at Vanderbilt. Mm. And what, what was your graduate degree in? An MBA, business degree. Okay. I was doing anything to prolong college and put off <laughs> responsibility. <laughs> so Still I- trying some days. 
How was your experience getting a, a master's of business administration? Did you like that? Yeah, you know, I had an I had an undergraduate business degree too. So honestly, when you have an undergraduate business degree, getting your MBA is is not a big step mm-hmm. forward. Right. Yeah, and so like I said, prolonged college. Yeah. Um, tell me about your upbringing, your family. Are you an only child? Do you have siblings? Or I have a younger brother, seven years younger than me. So for seven years, I was an only child. Mm. I think I thought it was a pretty good life. Um, and then uh, he came along. And so, yeah, we're the only two kids. And we, uh, like I said, grew up primarily in Alabama, part of an Episcopal church mm. there. That's really where I came to understand much of what I do about faith, or at least those early years. That was a, a real positive for me. Mm. And what was... Uh... What was it like growing up as an Episcopal in the Deep South? Yeah. That's not something that, that maybe... Was it common or...? Yeah, I don't know that it was common, but it wasn't on the outside either. I had lots of friends that were Baptist and Church of Christ and, and nothing, mm-hmm. you know? And so it was just what we were. And we actually had... Um, our youth group was led by a local Young Life leader okay. who came to our priest at the time and said, what can we do to help you? I think they heard that... He was a good guy, and he was trying to do something down there with our church. And he said, well, I don't know what to do with our youth. And voila, we now have a Young Life leader leading us. And uh, that was great. I mean, mm. it, was, it truly was a great combination to me of um, the Episcopal Church. They kind of let you, I don't want to say believe what you believe, but kind of. You know, it's, it's much less prescribed mm. and more about community. And right. so that was a real positive. And then... The Young Life piece obviously brought lots of fun to faith, and I view that all as uh, vivid memories and a big part of who I am today. So how did you go from a kid growing up in Alabama, Episcopal Church, Young Life, uh, to getting an MBA at Vanderbilt to carrying Josh McDowell's briefcase? Yeah, so coming out of college with an accounting degree, not desiring to be an accountant at any time, no offense to accountants (laughs) out there. I did. I had met uh, one of the speakers with Campus Crusade at my fraternity house. I like to travel. It sounded like a pretty cool thing to do. So that's how I ended up with Josh. And um, I think I lived in Southern California for a year, which is where he lived. I think in that year, I spent two weekends in town. I was either off visiting friends, experiencing Southern California, or traveling with him with work. And how so, did you get connected with Campus Crusade? I was involved with Campus Crusade at Alabama. In Alabama, okay. Okay. good crusade student. How was that experience for you? Um, You know, hey, look, when I um, graduated from high school and left for Alabama, um, my parents actually got divorced at that point. And so here I was, a kid um, who really um, didn't have a great grounding at that point Mm. and was looking for something. And I think evangelical faith kind of brought me a real foothold, and, and it um, brought me community. It brought me um, energy and fun. It brought me a connection to God that I had not had before. I did a couple of different summer projects. I spent a summer in Hawaii. Um, I went to what we called the Soviet Union back then uh, in the 80s. And back so, in the USSR, baby. <laughs> that's what it was. And so that was a great um, experience, mm. you know, and I think really God used that organization and that period of time in my life to help me develop some things that I didn't have before. And um, working with them out, out of college seemed like a natural thing to do. And 
after a couple of years from that, I, I was ready to go back to the South and back to graduate school and try to figure out what, uh, what was going to lie ahead for me. Okay. So you went to graduate school. You couldn't put off going into the real world any longer. What did you do after college? What, did you get married immediately? <laughs> no, nope, okay. nope. I, I had, I, I met who became, uh, Gwen, who became my wife. Um, I had met her like five years earlier when I was in college. She went to Auburn. I had friends at Auburn. We met, but we were just friends. Then we both ended up in Nashville. So I got a job with a, um, essentially a company that was a distribution company for video and music and books and kind of learned the periphery of distribution in the entertainment business. Um, but then shortly thereafter, joined a record company, Christian record company mm. called Reunion Records. It was the home of Michael W. Smith and Rich Mullins, some great artists. Um, kind of came out of the empire, if you will, that came out of Amy Grant and kind of the businesses that mm -hmm. she had built and her managers started this label. And so it was kind of a new world for me. I was in marketing, and which is kind of what my MBA had focused on. And um, and I loved music, and these were fun people, and it was a great time. And it was right about that time that uh, Gwen and I started dating, got married about a year later. And so Howard family had begun. That was all the way back in 1993. Okay. So uh, to date it. And I spent uh, about four years in the record company at that point. Um, that company got bought, and uh, I was kind of trying to figure out what to do. Had lunch with a friend. Um, and he said, hey, I know a guy, he's starting this, uh, he has this video series with vegetables, talking vegetables. <laughs> and I thought, man, that does not sound like me, but thank <laughs> you. Um, now, what ended up happening is I ended up uh, going to Chicago and meeting Phil Vischer and spent the next seven years working with Big Idea Productions and Veggie Tales and what was a wildly creative and genius company. Absolutely. Mm. Mm. And from there, what, what was your role there? Yeah, I started out um, in marketing, and he let me, uh, he being Phil, let me stay in Nashville. They were based in Chicago. Way too cold for me. <laughs> uh, my blood is southern, and it's thin, and it, it could freeze in Chicago. So, so, they had a, so they had a Nashville office. They did then. Okay. Uh, when I, when I, the day I signed on, I became the Nashville office. Okay. And so over time, we built an office of about 15 people. Okay. That was the marketing to the faith audience that ultimately... So you never left when you graduated from Vanderbilt? I never left. Okay. Never left. Um, and so at Big Idea, it was great. You know, we, were selling DV, we were selling videos. Eventually, we were selling DVDs. And toward the end of that time, Phil wanted to make a uh, theatrical picture. And so we did. It was Joan of the VeggieTales movie. Mm -hmm. And that uh, movie... It presented a real challenge because the fans of VeggieTales knew that when a video came out, it's going to be on the end cap at Walmart or Family Christian or Lifeway for six weeks, 12 weeks. It'll always be there. And we can just go pick it up anytime. Well, a movie, um, we all know now, uh, if you don't perform an opening weekend, you're out of the theater. And right. so we really had to train our, um, our fans to show up on opening weekend. So we started some strategies like releasing uh, new projects on Saturdays, holding events in Christian bookstores, really trying to focus on can we get everybody to show up in the first weekend. Mm. And that was a, I, I have such great memories of that. Um, Chris Fuhr uh, was our head of marketing for Theatrical, and we worked together a lot on those things. And a lot of uh, folks that are still in my life today, we were, we were there at Big Idea, and uh, we really did kind of learn the theatrical business mm. 
um, in a rather unorthodox way and not in LA, but uh, had good partners that helped us along the way as well. That's awesome. And did that come to an end when VeggieTales closed down or when yeah. Big Idea got sold? I know they they went through all kinds of different yep. iterations. Yep, and it did at that point. I kind of cycled out at that point, at the point of the first sale slash transition into something different. And a couple of folks from Big Idea and myself made a movie. Um, we wanted to continue in that space, and it was a movie called The Second Chance. had Michael W. Smith in it. It was pretty gritty. It was... Uh, you know, I, I describe it as there were more lessons learned than dollars earned, mm. um, but we were fortunate. Provident came in and wanted that film and wanted to start doing more. Mm. And so um, Provident Films was born at that point. Sony Pictures wanted to do some other things, more faith things with us. Uh, not long after that, um, a movie came from Albany, Georgia, from a church, Sherwood Baptist. They wanted a Third Day song. Third Day was on the Provident record label. And we said, well, you know, a, a church made a movie, may not be very good, may not want Third Day Song in it. So we said, send it to us. So we watched the movie, and before it was over, we were ready to go to Albany and, and work with these guys because we knew what to do with it. These guys knew how to tell a story. They knew how to uh, evoke emotion. They knew how to use humor. And that's how Provident Films really got, got launched in a bigger way was with the success of Facing the Giants. Okay. And then uh, you were there for how long? I was there for 12 years. Okay. Yeah, a long time. You saw a lot of changes, in the, and I know um, myself coming from, from some of that background as well, is that whole Christian ecosystem kind of exploded, and uh, it, it went up, it went down, it went sideways. Uh, talk a little bit about that experience for you. I know, I know you have fond uh, memories, but uh, what... what Talk to me from a maybe an unbiased approach to say, what was it like during those years? Yeah. I mean, there was some big stuff going on. Yeah. There you had the passion of the Christ that kind of that kind of blew up. Then you had the facing the giants that blew up, and there was a lot of things that you were involved in. Yep. You know, in those days there were very few faith movies. Right. And the audience was really hungry for more. And so coming on the heels of Facing the Giants um, came fireproof, came courageous. Urban Brothers were starting to kind of build a business with October Baby. And I think at that point, what you had is, is a, a market for independent films that had a very loyal audience, and we knew where they were, and there was not a lot of competition for their mind space. And so it's not that nothing, it's not that we had zero failures, but it was the, the bar was not overly high. Mm. And um, as such, we saw a lot of success there and not a lot of competition, but it didn't take long and competition did come. And look, the first competition started coming from the studios. Mm -hmm. you know, Sony Pictures had been our partner um, and we provided a, a service for them. And uh, they eventually said, hey, we think that we would like to do this on our own. And they uh, built a team, became a firm, and we partnered with the firm on a number of things. And then they did some of their own projects. And you know, the, that's about the time the studios really all kind of got involved. And so all of a sudden, the two and three million dollar movies were now uh, had competition of 10 and 15 and 20 million dollar mm -hmm. movies with real Hollywood stars. And it really over the over the course of those 10 years, the business dramatically changed. Mm -hmm. And now the bar for entry um, was much higher. Mm. And the, the odds of succeeding with a $2 million movie 
with someone with without Hollywood talent became much uh, the the odds became much longer, and uh, the risk much higher. Um, now, what also happened is studios know how to make good movies, and they make them with stars and great talent, and it pushed everybody in the faith world to do better movies, um, to tell stories in a upright way, and so I think that's nothing but a positive in terms of how that ultimately has affected the landscape of faith films. Um, it's really these days dominated by the studios and an occasional independent film hit. Um, so way different. What's, uh, what's going on? You're having uh, success. Things are kind of popping. You, you get in early on, on this Provident film project. You're heading that up. Um, business is, seems to be going well. What's going on internally during this time with you? Yeah. So, you know, I talked about growing up. Um, One of my challenges, I think every household has dysfunction in it. And as a seven-year-old with a dad who really had a drinking problem, um, I figured out in that household of dysfunction um, that after school, sitting in front of the television with the toaster and loaf of bread, the jar of jelly and the butter, um, man, it made me feel better. Hmm. And uh, it helped sustain me in those days. It, it, uh, it was kind of my go-to tool when I got home from, from school. I, I have this uh, in an old scrapbook where our teacher in third grade had a straw picture of our favorite after-school activity. And I drew a bag of Cheetos and a TV. Hmm. And, uh, and so food really played a role for me. Um, as I got older, Um, I continued to use food, Um, even though as an adult, I had other tools to deal with life. um, Food was a hard one to give up. And so um, compulsive overeating really became a challenge for me. And I think um, 10 years into marriage, I had gained about 60 pounds. And I kind of realized, man, I'm on my way to to this really being an issue for my life. And so I actually started going to a 12-step program called Overeaters Anonymous and uh, found a lot of like-minded, like-hearted, similarly challenged people. I think food is such an interesting thing. It's it's the drug that in the part of the culture I'm I'm in, in America, and in particular in the evangelical culture, it's the misuse of food is not only tolerated— it's blessed a lot of times, mm-hmm. um, and it is. It has a very similar effect on the body as alcohol does. I mean, when we eat sugar, refined sugar, um, in essence, uh, that's no different than alcohol. Alcohol just happens to be fermented, does some funnier things to our mind. You know, I can I can overeat and get in my car and drive my kids somewhere. There's a, there's a plus to that. Um, on the other hand, the behavior for me was an addiction, mm. um, and Uh, I'm very thankful at that point that I was able to see it, able to be directed to people who could be part of um, me stopping that, you know, trying to do something about it, you know, in terms of what we call recovery now. Um, And so that was an interesting, besides the fact that it was life-changing and hopefully um, one of the reasons I'm still alive today and hopefully will be for a long time, um, it also challenged some of my views of God. Um, I had stayed in an even in the evangelical church um, all those years, and 
What I encountered in 12-step program, a lot of times um, Christians are afraid of 12-step programs because the terminology higher power is used. Mm -hmm. Mm, We're not so sure about higher power. Um, And so what I found there um, were a bunch of people who had different views of God than mine. In a lot of cases, some of them were similar, but a lot of them were different. Some of them called him, uh, called him, how do you like that, Uh, God. Um, Some of them called it something completely different. Um, and, but what I found is these people, um, knew how to love mm. and they had found surrender in their lives. And uh, as a Christian, I'm a huge believer in surrender and that being, you know, our challenge. Mm. And so it kind of messed me up, messed with my mind that here are people who really don't have any of the answers that I think are the right answers. And yet they found love and they found surrender. And then I could contrast that with people that I knew in my church, and certainly me at times, um, who had all the right answers, you know, and looked looked the part, but who didn't have much love, mm. and who didn't um, seemingly find a lot of surrender. Mm. So I started to wonder at that point: is is the way we do it as evangelical Christians? Is that the only way? And I'm not talking about is Jesus the only way? That's not the question I'm asking. Um, but is the way we practice Jesus in the evangelical mm. church, is that really the, the path to surrender? Um, I'm sorry, the path to knowing God, mm. you know? And, and so that really started me on a path that I continue today of, of trying to figure that out. Or I don't want to say that, not trying to figure it out, um, but of learning different ways to connect to God. Mm. Um, and and maybe not in just a very traditional um, way that everybody does. Mm. I once had a had a, actually an ang- a Episcopal priest tell me when I was going through something. It was just happened to be a friend. This person said, um, "You know, probably the most the best most accurate uh, thing on this earth that I have found." Um, for connecting and spirituality is the 12-step program. And he said, unfortunately, the barrier to entry is you either either have to be an alcoholic, a drug addict, or have some sort of addiction. Um, and, and, you know, having observed and knowing many people who have been involved in that and, and reading about it and seeing it from afar, it feels like um, it is a very accepting, open, uh, truly loving environment. And yet, again, what would you say to that when you say, when someone says, yeah, but the barrier, it's like, no one, you can't just go jump in and let's get everybody on board with it. Um, But there's something beautiful about that too. It's like, you have to come with your own vulnerability, right? And nobody shows up at a 12 step program until they hit their bottom, as we Mm. say, you know, you've got to be at a place where nothing else has worked. And the, the first step of the 12 steps is that I'm powerless. You know, that I can't, I don't have the power to overcome what is in front of me. Now, I personally believe that we all are in that place. Mm. We just oftentimes need a crisis to show us. But they've got 12-step programs, um, even for codependency. It's called Al-Anon. You mm. know, I, I think anybody can benefit from a 12-step program, but I do believe the, the barrier to entry you're right. You could say it's an addiction, it's a crisis, but it really is coming to the end of ourselves. 
Mm. And I believe that regardless of if you're in a 12-step program or not, that a path to finding God, the path to finding God, finding ultimate meaning in life is coming to the end of ourselves. You know, whether you call that sin or whatever you call it, we have to come to the end of ourselves because until then, we think we can do it. Mm. We're going to make it happen. I don't know anybody yet that's made it happen. You know, we have flashes of brilliance without a doubt, but they never last long. What would you say to the person listening? Because I'm hearing the words out of your mouth and I'm hearing things like, you have to come to the end of yourself. You can't do it anymore. Isn't that the, isn't that the gospel that we've heard growing up that, you know, isn't that the basis for evangelical Protestant faith is that um, only Jesus can save you. You can't save yourself. It's all of grace and it's all of him. Is, are you saying the same thing or are you saying something a little different? You know, I think at, at the root, I'm saying the same thing, that we have to come to the end of ourselves. Um, I, I once heard somebody uh, talk about their higher power, and they basically said, there is a God and I'm not it. Mm. You know? And I think that in this journey of mine, what I've come to be is less certain of lots of things. Mm. Like, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know how it all works necessarily. Um, I am a follower of Jesus. Um, how that plays into salvation, I know that we have this systematic theology from the Bible um, that has yielded what that formula is. I mean, again, I was part of Campus Crusade. We had it all down oh, yeah. into a booklet, man, mm-hmm. that I shared on the beach for a mm-hmm. long time. Um, and I'm not downing that. I'm just saying I don't know that that's, that, that encapsulation of it is exhaustive. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think, from my own understanding, that it's not quite that narrow. And I'm not saying that it's not about Jesus. I think that maybe all of this is just because of Jesus. But what we have to do in response, I don't know. I, that's what I'm less sure about, mm-hmm. you know. And so for me, following Jesus is a great path. Um, I just think at the end of the day, if what we're doing isn't evidenced by our love mm-hmm. and by our, our own surrender, you know, then that, that's probably not the thing for me. Well, I've come to the point in my, my life where I am, I am comfortable with saying when I find people or come in contact with people who are loving, who are kind, who are joyful, who are at peace. What we in our Christian context would call the fruit of the Spirit, regardless of who they are or what name they call God or what religion they're in, I, have, I feel comfortable in saying they are following the way of Jesus. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And because what we would say in our Christian tradition is it's only through God that those things come. So I'm totally good with that. Um, and when I find people that aren't in the tr- Christian tradition, just as you've just said, that have seemingly come upon those things, I think they found a connection to God. I think of Romans 1, that, that God is evident in the world around us. Like, to me, being an atheist, I can't, I'm, no offense to atheists out there, I just can't fathom it, mm. um, given when I see nature, I feel close to God. So if I never had a Bible and never knew the name Jesus, but was in the world and saw the beauty and the majesty and how it all came together, I don't know how I couldn't reach out and surrender to the God who did all this. Mm. Um, 
And that's really, some days that's where I am. Mm. It's like, wow. Um, and then we have to deal with this problem that bad things happen, mm. you know, and it, it, it's hard. It's hard. It's, I don't have the answers. Mm. Um, and I'm confident that if anybody has a simple answer for it, that doesn't sound like the answer for me. You know, some of the Native American tribes, many of them called their understanding of the divine, the great mystery. Would you resonate with that? Yeah, I, absolutely. Because mm. I and look, even in Christian tradition, we talk about the mystery of Christ. Mm. You know, um, and so I I totally find it mystery that that's where it fits to me of not being certain about things. Mm. Um, so I can be not certain, but I can be passionate, mm. and I can can love the things of Jesus, and I can see Him in all things. You know, it doesn't have to fit. Um, this smaller model that I think sometimes passes for a ticket to heaven. You know, to me, knowing God and being close to God and following the way of Jesus is so much more than just a salvation path. Hmm. And so I think people that are there may miss out on a lot of the richness of, of following our Creator. Hmm. And so with this kind of new or, or growing understanding, I would call it a bigger understanding of God, an evolved understanding of God. Um, what has that done to you uh, in the context of maybe the evangelical subculture that you're in? So how does that all fit in? To- yeah, yeah. So I want to say first off that I'm really thankful for my path mm-hmm. and for um, when I worked for Campus Crusade and my time in the evangelical church. Um, and so I think God's used all those things to shape who I am. For me, there was never an end of my faith. It only kept growing and mm. keeps growing, and I hope it never will stop. Um, and so I don't look at any of that negatively. There are different times in life where I think we gravitate toward different things, and mm. that expression of my faith probably isn't spot on anymore. But I still live in that village, if you will. And those sure. are my best friends. And, and, and yeah, with the people I'm closest to, I'm real open about it. And I have a group of friends who are really loving and kind. And I'm not trying to convince them of anything. And they're not trying to convince me of anything. And we can still have a bond around our following Jesus. And our so it hasn't been God. an issue for you? It really, you know, I think there was a time at first where I felt like, does this mean... I have to push back. Do I, you know, and I kind of could it or really don't. I would say it was a little bit hard to become honest with people. It was kind of my coming out, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not that I don't believe the Bible. I'm all in for the Bible. I think I may view it differently than I did when I was um, more in the middle of the evangelical church. Um, and, and certainly as it relates to the projects that I work on, one of the reasons I, I uh, started Third Coast was to work on things that are a bit broader. But I want everything I do to reflect that we live in a world with a loving God, mm. with kindness and hope. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that sense, you know, I, I still gravitate toward doing films that I think fit great with Jesus. Mm-hmm. Some of them may talk about him, but a lot of them may not. Right. But it's still the love and the compassion and the heart is what I long to be part of. And so in one sense, yeah, I'm probably involved in less movies that have an overt expression of faith. Still do some. I'm not opposed to it. And let me note also that the filmmakers that I've gotten to work with in the past, who that is what they do, they have, I, I, I so respect their earnestness and their vision. 
You know, over time, it may not be my vision anymore, but I have great respect and appreciation for them. Mm, um, I good. think that we're too easily, I think Christians too easily criticize Christian movies. I'm guessing they don't watch a lot of independent films <laughs> um, because I see lots of really bad independent yeah, films. Absolutely. And it's, you know, ultimately it's art and art for some is not art for all. Right. And so I do believe that Christian filmmakers take it on the head um, in an unfair uh, fashion. Yeah. Yeah. I totally get that. You have, you have three kids. Um, and I know in some of our past conversations, you've said that, um, that, that they have been a real catalyst for your growth and change and seeing the world differently as do children. Children have a way of doing that. I know in my own life, uh, that's the way it is. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, You know, um, first off being a parent, I think you can't, you can't avoid the idea that I can't control this. I can't create a kid who stays out of trouble, who stays healthy, who like that's so beyond us, mm. you know? And so to me, there's a surrender right there mm. that um, I, I think for the first years of parenthood, I tried to be on top, man. I wanted to do it all right. Um, and look, I still want to do good things. I don't want to do wrong, but it's too big to get it all right. Yeah. You know, and, and that kind of fit, I think that lesson played into lots of my development that I can't get the world right. Like, man, this is a dangerous place when we're held to a standard of doing everything right. Mm. You know, I don't want to hurt people. I don't want to hurt myself. Um, but I, I had to quit trying to get it all right. Mm. Um, so I'd say that's what, first of all, parenthood did to me. Um, and then, yeah, each of my kids is different, but each of them has their own approach to God. And I think they've each challenged me. Um, again, me living in the world of certainty, the more you expose yourself to people who are perhaps in different places challenges your certainty. Mm. And I think it's easy to double down on our certainty. And by golly, this is what I believe. The Bible says it. I believe it. That resolves it or however that goes. Um, that was not the right uh, pass, uh, uh, path for me. Um, and I just, my oldest uh, son, as he traveled internationally and um, was exposed to things and we talk about it, it really did broaden my own mind. I mean, we live in such a protected culture in the American evangelical church and in the South mm. and in, you know, the upscale South. It's like, we tend to believe this is what the world is and right. it's really not, right. you know, it's a small piece of it. But we don't know the challenge that so many do. And I'm not saying we should feel guilty for it. I'm just saying if you think this is all there is, then maybe you need to take a, uh, a little bit more of a look around. Yeah, yeah. That's really true. Both of my kids, my two oldest ones, have, have gone to lived in big cities. Um, and it has f continues to form them and transform them as they, as they interrelate and build friendships with people from all over the world and different viewpoints and different lenses of the world. Um, I think that's so important to really see what is humanity and what, what, what is universal and what is not universal. I think that's the key is, you know, when you, when you grow up in a very small environment, there's nothing wrong with that, but if you never leave it, um, it's easy to get the viewpoint that uh, humanity is this. And this is the way all people see things. But then you get around, you go to another country, you go to a big city, and you find, well, wait a second, there's a lot we have in common, but then again, there's a lot we don't. I thought everybody viewed things this way. It is transformative for sure. Um, 
so how about how about marriage? How about close relationships like that? How as is this a is this a journey that you've gone on together? Talk to me you know, a little about that. I, I recently heard somebody talk about their marriage and talk about they were he and his wife, and I think they've been married, I don't know, 20 years, something like that. We're now defining their fifth marriage together. Mm. Um, and I said, what do you mean? He said, you know, different phases of life. We have a different looking marriage. Mm. And I thought back on that and thought, oh my goodness, it's so true. I've got a 16-year-old at home, two kids that have already moved out of the house. And our life is so much different than it was, you know, the first two years, we, no kids, man, we do whatever we want to anytime we wanted to. Um, and then we started having kids and different jobs, different financial responsibilities, different responsibilities in life. And inevitably, your marriage changes in all those things. And so to me, the idea that the challenges change is universal. You know? Now, I think we try real hard not to let it change. I don't know that's the right. That to me is like fighting the wind, you know, and good luck with that. You know, you're not going to change the wind. You may deviate how it moves over your body, but you're not going to change it. Um, I also am struck by, um, from a number of people's stories that I hear, that oftentimes as we get married young, um, we're, we're, we're attracted by our dysfunction, if you will, that our dysfunctions fit together. Mm. We go looking for somebody, and this isn't an original thought for me. There are a number of authors that have written about this, but we go looking for somebody that helps us correct those things that didn't go right during childhood. Um, it's why we often marry people that are like our parents or a combination of our parents. Um, and then as we begin to change in life, kind of that equation changes, you know, um, you know, throw in that you, you know, go through not just the normal change of life, but, you know, in a case like I have where you know, kind of the way of your faith changes, but just full of challenge. Mm. And so to me, the harder we try to keep it the same, the tireder we get, and the more it, it just it can't. It's a different life that we live now, and so we work on our marriage a lot. And I'm so thankful to have a wife, a spouse who wants to work on it with me. Mm. You know uh, that we want to work on it together, and I, I think that to me is uh, will always be hope and always be. The path forward because we just won't start stop changing. Yeah, you know, and I don't want to live a life where I stop changing. Yes, that, and I don't think I would have understood that ten years ago. Um, but I want life to be big and full and rich, and I want it to be unpredictable. I had to do something this summer with my job that I'd never done before, um, and all of a sudden I was dealing with feel, fear of failure, and man, there was so much risk, and I felt at stake every day, and I couldn't sleep. Um, and then we made it through it. And then I look back on it, I learned more in that three-month period than I think I've ever learned in my life. Mm. And I realized I need to try things that I haven't done before. Mm. I, and man, we can live a safe life if we try. Yeah. I don't want to have a safe life. Yeah. Don't, don't you, I've found, I've been thinking a lot about this lately, Ben. Um, it's interesting to me that um, all of life and all, of, we're surrounded with, you know, we have our our phones, our computers, our science, our technology, our doctors, and all of those things are constantly upgrading and changing, and we're learning new things. It's like if you have an, out, an, up, an outdated operating system on your iPhone from a year ago, you're like, what are you doing? And you better update that thing. Um, same thing with you know, uh, 
science and, and, and studies and things that they're discovering about new medications and health and, um, you know, things about food and just on and on it goes. It just seems like we're always growing and evolving and changing. We're learning. We're encouraging our kids, go learn more, go to college, go expand your brain, learn new things that you didn't know. And yet, for some reason, when it comes to um, our faith, when it comes to aspects of our personality, we kind of get stuck and, and say, well, there's nothing more to learn, or this is the way I always was, and this is the way I always going to be. I'm not going to change, or truth is truth is truth, and it doesn't change. And there's some, there are some things that are immovable. I get that. But why, why do we have a hard time in evolving and growing and changing? I, I love the way that you said that. You said, I hope that you're always growing. Uh, I think it's fear. I think yeah. that we, even when our, even when we're in the middle of bad things, if you will, harder things, harder feelings, um, they become familiar. And I think there's such a temptation to keep the familiar. And man, I am right there. Like I'm the guy that wants to go to vacation in the same place every (laughs) year. Um, And then I kind of think, man, I don't know. Maybe there's something else out there. Maybe there's another fun place to go. Um, Maybe there are other lessons to be learned. Maybe there are other people to know, um, other books to read other podcasts to listen to. I mean, that's an overwhelming world. (laughs) Um, Other shows to watch. Um, So yeah, I really want to be that. And I find that there's something um, in in me that at times just wants to play it safe and huddle in and stay inside, if you will, with curtains drawn and watch the same same shows I've always watched. Mm. Um, And so I, I do believe and would challenge anybody that uh, taking some risks, doing some things that we're not comfortable doing, whether that's just meeting somebody you hadn't met before, you know, mm-hmm. go somewhere you haven't gone before. Um, ask somebody a question you've always been afraid to ask. Um, I think those, for me, those things have led to a fuller and richer life. They've led to fear. Sometimes they lead to failure. Like it does happen. Um, but I think we learn so much in that process. So I hope to be an advocate for that the rest of my life. Mm. Do you feel like any of this, um, your own personal journey, will reflect in some of the movies that you're involved in? Or will that just be totally up to whatever comes across your desk and stories that, that people send you? Yeah, well, I think that everything I work on is going to have hope and inspiration. It's going to be something that reflects back kindness. You know, um, even in hard stories, the fact that we can come out on the other side with something new, with something gained. Um, now, I ultimately believe um, you could call that redemption. You can call it um, just hope. But to me, that's what I find um, in God, hmm. you know, that we have an ever-changing world around us. But every day it starts overdue. Hmm. And so to me, there, that's what will be common in the projects that I work on that there will always be hope, there will always be kindness, there will always be something gained by the risk in the middle. Mm. Um, and I hope that that's the life I can keep living too. Mm. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, any of the stuff that you're working on with this new uh, production company that you started? Is, yeah. it, is it? Have you released any films from it yet? You know, we've got two films that will release next year. It's very yeah. exciting. Um, one is with a comedian named Shonda Pierce. Shonda is funny, and Shonda has always... Um, been able to talk about the harder parts of life in the midst of her comedy. I just, I love that. 
You know, I think, yes, life life can be a barrel of monkeys, but man, there's a downside too. Shonda always captures that. And we have a great feel-good comedy with her that's not, it doesn't have a faith message per se. It just shows a person of faith going through their life, you know, and it's it's a kind of an It's a Wonderful Life story where she's a down-on-her-luck waitress at the Biscuit Barrel and uh, has lost her husband, about to lose her house, enters a karaoke contest, doesn't win, doesn't save her house. And then uh, at, at her restaurant, she has a George Bailey, It's a Wonderful Life moment, and she, she gets the money and she saves her house. Um, it's just a feel-good, inspirational, funny story. Mm. So that's one. And then our other is a true story. This happened in 2014 in Cabo San Lucas. There was an orphanage that was about to lose their property, and these boys would be put on the streets, um, which being put out on the streets as a young teenager in in Mexico is not a good life expectancy. Mm. Um, so somebody comes along and enters them into the world's largest fishing tournament called the Bisbee. Um, it's a blue marlin fishing tournament. And again, this is a true story. Um, the three of the orphans and their headmaster go out and catch the winning blue marlin and win $250,000 <laughs> and uh, save, their, uh, save the orphanage. Wow. And, uh, we have Dennis Quaid in that movie. We have a great um, Latin um, flavor to the story. Obviously, it took place in Mexico, and it's real. And you, you can't depict kids that grew up with no parents on the streets of Mexico as as just shiny and happy. You know, there's there's happiness, there's goodness, there's kindness in the story, but it's real. It mm. feels real. And I've loved being part of that project. Mm. Both of those will come out next year. Uh, and don't have an exact date yet? No exact date. Sometime after the middle of the year. And what what are they both called? Um, they're both being called something that we don't know yet. <laughs> <laughs> untitled. How's that? Mr. Vague. Look for Untitled <laughs> next year. What What is it that you want people to know and kind of wrapping up about Ben Howard? Those people who may have known you 25 years ago, those people who know you 10 years ago, and those people that are getting to know you today, what do you want them to know? You know, I what I would want them to know about me and what I believe about life, um, something that I first read and came to consider from Brene Brown, and that's that everybody is doing their best. Mm. And I, I love think that, that um, I've noticed that if I can have that mentality, I don't get angry as much. You know, like when I get cut off by somebody when I'm driving, you know, my first impulse is, hey, why do they deserve to be in front of me? Um, I've started to imagine at that point, hey, they've got a sick relative at the hospital and they need to get there really fast. Mm. Um, or, hey, they've really got to be somewhere quick. Um, if I can have the mentality when I encounter a disagreement with somebody that, um, again, they're doing their best, even if I can take that attitude with myself, you know, man, I really messed up yesterday. But you know what? At that moment, I did my best. I think we can be such a kinder, gentler people mm. like that. I, I really believe that's one of the most loving things we can do is to imagine that others are doing their best, is to know that. Very few people set out to screw things up for themselves. Right. You know? or, or for others, necessarily. Yeah, I totally agree. I think fear gets in our way. There are lots of things that get in our way. Um, but what is the hardest for me in our culture today is we have such a combative culture. We have such a us versus them. Um, and we, we, we create stories. You know, we, we see something happen. We have one piece of data, and we create an 
entire story around it. Mm-hmm. Usually that story has us being the good guy and everybody else being the bad guy. Right. And then we're just angry. Right. Just angry because look what they did to me. And I so don't want to live like that. And I so want to live in a world where we all try to give each other the benefit of the doubt, where uh, we're kind and we're gracious. Mm, that's so good. That's so good. How can people uh, learn more about what you're doing with your film company or, or if they wanted, or if they're listening to this and they want to connect with you? I know you're on social media and other places. Yeah, but thirdcoastcontent.com is probably the, the best way to reach me and or learn about what we're doing. Okay, okay. And uh, will you be making other movies in the future? Is it primarily films? Um, you know, you know what? Films, TV shows, um, anything, podcasts. Okay. Um, yeah. So thirdcoastcontent.com. I don't know if I said it right. Thirdcoastcontent, just like it sounds, .com. But yeah, we're hoping to, we're hoping to tell stories wherever people are receiving stories. And these mm. days, um, lots of other places than the theater. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for taking your time out of your busy schedule and sharing your life story. It's been fascinating. Um, I know that we could probably go on and on for another hour, but neither one of us can do that. So uh, we'll have to wrap it up. But I just want to thank you for being on the show. Thank you for being the um, a demonstration of kindness and including. Um, I know you and I have had these conversations several times over the past few weeks, how uh, it's it's easy and it, it's, it's my tendency to become... Um, bitter or sarcastic, um, but you always push me back to, I include, I'm, I love those people. This, these are my people. Um, and this has brought me to where I am today. So thank you for being a, a good demonstration of that. Yeah. Thank you, Bob. I we, appreciate the opportunity to get to be here. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Bye.